Hello and welcome to Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. This is episode 9 and the third part of the series dealing with Ukraine, focusing today specifically on Kiev. And I'm going to do this in a slightly different manner than I usually do, which is I'm going to start with a very brief introduction to the Jewish history of Kiev and then go back in time and introduce you to two important concepts that explain not only a great deal about the Jewish history of Kiev, but also about the difficult and often fraught and sometimes violent history of the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. So very briefly, the first mention of Jews in Kiev is found in a 10th century letter written by Jews from Cairo in ancient Hebrew. It's the oldest written document to mention the name of the city, and Jewish travelers such as Binyamin Metudela and others mention the city as one with a very large Jewish community. During the Mongol occupation in the 13th century, Kiev was destroyed, and along with that destruction came the destruction of the Jewish community. But the community revived itself when... Kiev was transferred to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, during which period Jews were allowed to settle in Kiev, but they were subject to several deportations or expulsions, one in 1495 and another in 1619. One of the great Ukrainian heroes, for reasons that you'll hear about later, was a guy named Bogdan Khmelnytsky who was a leader of a certain group of Cossacks who destroyed most of the Jews in Kiev, in other words, murdered them in 1648, along with most of the other Jews in Ukraine. After the Russian occupation in 1654, Jews were not allowed to settle in the city, and that was a prohibition that was lifted formally only in 1793. So during the 1800s, the Jewish community flourished and became one of the biggest in Europe eventually, although in 1815 it was only 1,500, but by the eve of World War I, it was almost 100,000. In that period, many synagogues were built, and some of those are still standing. There were a number of pogroms in 1882, again in 1905, and subsequently further into the 20th century, there was also a very famous trial called the Mendel Bayless trial in which a local Jew was accused of the infamous and totally baseless idea of the ritual murder of a Christian child. This trial took place in 1903 and eventually Bayless was found innocent. This trial is sort of lightly fictionalized in a great book by Bernard Malamud called The Fixer, which is one book that I would strongly recommend in trying to come to a greater understanding of the Jewish history of Kiev. During the Russian Revolution and then the Ukrainian War of Independence, the city switched hands several times with more pogroms against the Jewish people. Once the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic was established, the Jewish population grew rapidly, and eventually on the eve of World War II, it had grown to roughly 225,000 people, so more than double what it was 
on the eve of World War I. That means in a period of roughly 25 years, the Jewish community grew from 100,000 to 225,000. The probably most infamous event in Jewish history in Ukraine occurred when the Nazis gathered together more than 30,000 Jews in a wooded area just outside the city, although today it's near the center of the city. It's called Babi Yar. It's a ravine at which more than 30,000 Jews were shot in two days in late September 1941. And in the following year, another 15,000 Jews were rounded up and shot there as well. This location, which can be visited in Kiev today, and is a beautiful park and finally has some mention and memorial in the form of a giant menorah. There was no monument at all in Soviet times to all the Jews who died there. And one of the most famous Soviet poets, Yevgeny Yevtushenko, wrote a poem about this. And the first line and most haunting theme line that recurs in this poem and I'm going to tell you in Russian not to be a show-off because it just sounds so much better, and then I'll translate it. Nad babim yarm pamyatnikov nyet, which means at Babi Yar, there are no memorials, there are no monuments. And Yevtushenko saw this as a sign of institutionalized anti-Semitism, and he was not shy about protesting against that. Even after World War II ended... When the surviving Jews returned to the city from the countryside or wherever they were hidden, there was yet another pogrom in September of that year. Not large by historic standards, but still, 36 were hospitalized and 5 died of their wounds. In 1946, a year later, there was one operating synagogue in Kiev, but since the end of the Soviet Union, the Jewish population has grown. And one of the questions that people often ask is, how large is the current Jewish population in Kiev? Now, the official numbers are between 20 and 30,000, which is sizable. But if you ask a local rabbi or any sociologist, they will tell you that if you define Jewishness the way the Nazis did, in other words, if you have one Jewish grandparent or more, there are probably between 500,000 and 600,000 Jews in greater Kiev. And that makes it a huge center of Jewish life in which every movement in Judaism, various Hasidic groups, as well as modern Orthodox, conservative, reform, are all present and all operating programs that appeal, obviously, to more than just 20 or 30,000 people, they draw on this greater number of people who may not be 100% Jewish in the sense of both their parents and all four grandparents were Jewish, but are Jewish by self-definition. So before we get to modern Kiev, uh, let me give you first an idea of the geography. If you're sailing downriver on the Dnieper, one of the great rivers of the Eurasian landmass, you end up eventually in the Black Sea. And the east bank of the Dnieper is referred to as the left bank because that's where it is when you're going downstream. The west bank is referred to as uh, the right bank. 
and Kiev is built on a very steep hill overlooking the Dnieper River on the west bank of the Dnieper. And eventually, one of the problems became that west of the Dnieper was largely a Ukrainian-speaking population, whereas east of the Dnieper was largely a Russian-speaking population. And Russians and Ukrainians have a great many similarities, but also differences that provoke constant tension between the two groups. And part of that tension goes back to the very foundings of Kiev, which are shrouded in myth and legends. There's one legend that East Slavs founded Kiev in the 5th century, and that legend speaks of three brothers and a sister. The oldest brother was somebody named Ki, and the place name of Kiev is translated as Ki's place or belonging to Ki. The non-legendary time of the founding of the city is harder to ascertain, probably because it was founded more than once. There were settlements that archaeology shows us going back 20,000 years where Kiev is now, and a later settlement that goes back at least 2,000 years. But whatever the precise time of its foundation, Kiev was an important point on historic trade routes, standing at the confluence of the Dnieper and Nesta river systems and being a main route between Scandinavia and the Byzantine Empire and therefore between Scandinavia and the Silk Route. And the people who founded modern-day Kiev are more likely to be uh, related to the Varangians, who are probably of Swedish origin. In the year 839, the Holy Roman Emperor came to the conclusion that the people called Rus actually belonged to or were a sub-tribe of the nation known as the Swedes. Now, according to the primary chronicle of the Kievan Rus, Prince Oleg of Novgorod conquered Kiev in 882. He was a close relative of Rurik, and his descendants were known as the Rurikids, who basically, with minor exceptions, ruled over Kiev from 882 until 1169, so almost 300 years, during which Kiev was the capital of the Kievan Rus, which included much of what is today Russia, and went basically from the Baltic to the Black Sea. So I promise to move this along more quickly now. In 988, by order of the Grand Prince Vladimir, and here's another case where names are complicated. So in American English, that's Vladimir. In Russian, it's Vladimir. But in Ukrainian, it's Volodymyr. And each language pronounces it somewhat differently. It's the same person. So... The Grand Prince Vladimir I of Kiev ordered that the city residents be baptized en masse in the Dnieper River, an event which symbolized the conversion of Kievan Rus to Orthodox Christianity. And it was in that period which inaugurated the golden age politically and culturally of the Kievan Rus that the Kievan church refused to take note of the East-West Schism in Christianity and maintain good relations with both. It was, by the way, during this so-called Golden Age 
that a massive center of Orthodox Christianity was created in Kiev, consisting of countless cathedrals, monasteries, convents, etc., etc., all high up on the hill overlooking the Dnieper, and all quite beautiful, worth visiting today. And if you really want to see the whole complex and are a student of art history, you could spend easily a full day there. That's pretty much all that remains of this period, except for a chronic mistrust of people to the east and people to the north. The mistrust for people to the east follows the invasion of the Mongols, who originally planned to take Kiev unharmed, but because of what they perceived as Ukrainian perfidy, they broke down the gates and slaughtered most of the population in 1240. In the period following this, princes of Kiev, both descendants of Rurik and Lithuanian ones, were forced to accept Mongol overlordship. And this left a strong distaste in the mouth of contemporary Ukrainians. They were, in a way, liberated by the Lithuanian army in the 1320s. But it wasn't until 1362 when what used to be the Kievan Rus finally became officially part of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. The city was frequently attacked by Tatars and was destroyed by a Crimean Khan in 1482. But it was still an important place for the Orthodox religion. Starting in 1494, its local autonomy gradually increased in a series of actions by Lithuanian Grand Dukes and Polish kings, and finally culminated in a charter granted by Sigismund the Old in 1516. And since that period, Kiev had a Jewish community of some significance. And under one of the Grand Dukes, Jews were granted equal rights on the grounds that they paid the same taxes as everybody else. So in 1648, Bogdan Khmelnytsky, a guy that I mentioned earlier, led his Cossacks into Kiev triumphantly, establishing the rule of their Cossack Hetmanat in the city. These Cossacks had a special status within the newly formed political entity. The complete sovereignty of the Hetmanat didn't last long because the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth refused to recognize it and resumed hostilities. In 1654, Khmelnytsky decided to sign the Treaty of Pereyaslav with the Tsardom of Russia, a rising military power, in order to obtain military support against the Polish crown. However, just a few years later, in 1656, the Muscovites concluded the Truce of Vilna with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and that was approved by Bogdan Khmelnytsky. So after Khmelnytsky's death, the status of Kiev went back and forth between Russia, the Cossacks, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and probably a few other entities, including ultimately the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In the original plan, Kiev was to become the capital of the Grand Duchy of Ruthenia, with limited rights within the Polish-Lithuanian-Ruthenian Commonwealth. In the meantime, a descendant of Bogdan Khmelnytsky signed the Second Treaty of Pereyaslav in October 1659, 
with a Russian czar. Now, what's interesting about Pereyeslav is it's a pretty small place on the east bank of the Dnieper, downriver from Kiev. However, just by one of those strange historic coincidences, one of the best-loved Jewish authors of all time who wrote in Yiddish, Shalom Aleichem, was born in Pereyeslav almost exactly 200 years after the date of the treaty signed by Chmelnitsky's successor. In 1667, finally, a truce was concluded in which the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth ceded much of Ukraine, and on paper only for a period of two years, also the city of Kiev, to the Tsardom of Russia. The quote-unquote eternal peace of 1686 acknowledged the status quo and put Kiev under the control of Russia for several centuries to come. Kiev slowly lost its autonomy, which was finally abolished in 1775 by Catherine the Great. And an interesting footnote to all this is that none of the Polish-Russian treaties concerning Kiev has ever been ratified. Long after Kiev stopped being officially part of Poland, there was still a tremendous Polish presence. For example, in 1812, there were more than 40,000 Polish noblemen in the Kiev province, compared to only 1,000 Russians. The Poles made up probably no more than 10% of Kiev's population, but because the vote was restricted to landholders and property people and whatever, 25% of its voters, Polish was the language of the educational system. And until Polish enrollment in the National University was restricted in the 1860s, they made up the vast majority of that school's student body. According to the Russian census of 1874, of Kiev's 125,000 people at that point, 39% spoke Russian, or they called it Little Russian, referring to Ukrainian in a derisive manner. 13,000 spoke Yiddish. 9,000 spoke Real Russian. Almost 8,000 spoke Polish and about 2,500 spoke German. Those statistics tell a very interesting story of a city that was technically the capital of Ukraine, but in fact, probably more people spoke non-Ukrainian languages than spoke Ukrainian. And the various empires that had an impact on Ukrainian history, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, etc., etc., all had significant presence there. In a slightly later census, in 1897, approximately 56% of the population spoke Russian, 23% spoke Ukrainian, 13% spoke Yiddish, 7% spoke Polish, and 1% spoke the Belarusian language. Jews were expelled from Kiev repeatedly during the 19th century, but they always somehow managed to come back and eventually formed a very large percentage of the population. World War I ended in the middle of the Soviet Revolution when the Reds were fighting the rights, whites and Bolshevik troops and Menshevik troops fought a huge battle called the Battle of Kiev. Eventually, when the Germans withdrew after the war, an independent Ukraine was declared briefly until 
the Soviets took control once again in 1920. Later that year, Kiev was briefly captured by the Polish army, but they were ultimately driven out by the Red Army, and the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic was formed in 1922 with Kharkiv as its capital. The capital didn't move back until Kiev until 1934. And following 1934, during the Soviet period, there were a lot of repressive measures taken against Ukrainian culture and language, which certainly fertilized the ground that was already full of ill will between Russians and Ukrainians and explains part of the conflict which is ongoing today in eastern Ukraine and military deadly conflict between Russian forces and Ukrainian forces. One or two ironies I want to point out, the first of which is that Bogdan Khmelnytsky, known as one of the greatest anti-Semites in history and the leader of the Cossack massacres of the Jews and destruction of the entire Jewish population, almost, of Ukraine, is a Ukrainian folk hero because he represented a spirit of independence and defiance. And one of the largest monuments in the center of Kiev is to this guy who ironically was one of the greatest anti-Semites in history. Nonetheless, today the president of Ukraine is a Jewish guy who is their equivalent of Jerry Seinfeld. He was a popular stand-up comic on TV and is openly Jewish and part of his period of leadership features a revival of Jewish life, not necessarily by him, but certainly with his blessing and his encouragement. So if you visit Kiev, there are several synagogues still functioning. In the basement of one, there is a functioning kosher restaurant. Uh, there's the old Jewish neighborhood called Podil, which is lower, like down near the riverbanks and not in the upper city. And the upper city is where all kinds of old cathedrals and monuments, including the complex I described much earlier, stand and are well worth a visit. I look forward to talking with you again in the very near future. Thank you.